Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. John, let's bring in someone on Amazon, on Alphabet, and on conservative managed investment. Christopher Grisanti with us with MAI Capital uh, joining us right now. Chris Grisanti, what are Amazon and Alphabet signal this afternoon? So, Tom, I, we're expecting decent earnings there, Tom, and I think it will be more of the same strong growth through the pandemic. Uh, great companies to own when times are tough, but also great companies to own as the economy recovers. So, you know, the, the, the spotlight is on GameStop, but but the action, the fizzle is on GameStop, the stake is Amazon and Google and Facebook, et cetera. One of the ways you go higher are selected walls of worry. Measure the walls of worry right now. Is there enough gloom out there, uh, Chris, where you got major enthusiasm about a leg up? Oh, I think so, Tom. I, I mean, uh, everyone for the last week has been talking about how the markets are broken because GameStop has gone up a thousand percent and and we need regulation. And it seems to me the markets are working pretty well. Uh, GameStop is coming back down to earth. Uh, nobody's gone. Uh, no, no broker dealer has gone bankrupt, et cetera. And people made or lost the money as capitalists do. So, uh, but I think the attention ought to come back to where the cash flow really is, which are, are for many, uh, the large cap uh, technology and other companies. Uh, two parts to that answer. Let's go with the first part first. Chris, orderly is a word we hear a lot. Can you just walk me through the distinction between the orderly price action that you witnessed and something you would consider to be more disorderly? Oh, sure. Well, well, you know, obviously disorderly has a new definition of the dictionary under GameStop. And uh, it was the short squeeze, really, of my 35-year career. Um, so, but again, the system works. Uh, you know, steam is coming out. Uh, investors, capital plugged the whole of the hedge funds and of Robinhood so that we could continue through it. And it did it in its own self-interest. And, you know, I, I don't think this is a a terrible story of a broken system. I think it's a system that's stressed and then worked. Any dislocations you took advantage of, Chris? Absolutely. I think that's a great point, Jonathan. When prices move without fundamental reasons for them moving, there's always opportunity. So while the focus was that we're on these small short squeezes, um, you know, the rest of the market, as you guys covered, really dropped uh, the worst since October. So stocks like Facebook that came in um, with quite strong earnings last week, uh, you know, and it's down 10 or 15% from its highs of a couple of months ago. A terrific opportunity. So we moved in there. Um, we would move into Lockheed Martin. We bought a new position in Texas Instruments. Uh, we call semiconductors the oil of the digital economy. Um, all of that stuff was left by the wayside and the attention focused on this kind of tiny bit of the market. Chris Grisanti and, and folks, GameStop breaking through to new lows, 132 level uh, right now. Chris Grisanti, in terms of measured investment, it does come back to earnings and revenue. I guess we're seeing earnings resiliency. Are we seeing revenue resiliency? I don't think yet, Tom. You are for obviously the companies that, that we all knew were resilient, like the Amazon. But I think you'll see more cyclical stuff like a Disney with the theme parks, like a Comcast. Um, you'll see these companies show their resiliency as the economy opens up. And, of course, the market is anticipating that. But, but we're in the middle of the, <laughs> the cold, dark winter. And 
Uh, if you rolled the tape forward, you've already vaccinated almost 10% of the population. If you rolled the tape forward three or four months, it's hard not to be optimistic about the emerging economy. In fact, I'm more worried about overheating by the end of the year. But, but I'm very confident the economy is going to get better. And you'll see that revenue growth. Well, the economy will get better, and the revenue growth picks up. We're getting out front now. Are we pricing for the end of summer? Or are we already pricing into 2022? Oh, I don't think so, Tom. I think when 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 an economy comes out of a recession, and remember, this says this was a deep recession for many, you know, travel companies, restaurant companies, things like that. Um, the revenue and earnings growth typically takes analysts by surprise on the upside. So, how many of us are sitting at home planning that vacation we haven't been able to take for 18 months now? So, uh, I think you're going to see pent up demand. I think you're going to see strong earnings. Um, have we priced some of that in? Absolutely. Have we priced it all in? I don't think so. Things so have changed I, I a bit, though, Chris. Higher. Let me jump in. Tom, do you remember when we talked about Mr. O'Leary over at Ryanair? I think it was about three months ago. And he came on Bloomberg and he said, the beaches will be packed in Europe next summer. They will be packed. Three months later, Tom, does anyone think the beaches will be packed in no. Europe this summer? No. And, and again, it's, it is about the COVID and the vaccine recovery. But, John, as you mentioned earlier, the fact is we are seeing better statistics in the United States and we have some yeah. form of a daily. And, I, John, I'm going to say this on the x-axis as much as I can. It is a daily effort to get people vaccinated. And to me, sure. that's nonlinear. That really pays off down the road. Final question, Chris. Is there a U.S. bias here? Uh, sure, but but I think you're being way too pessimistic, John. As usual. Frankly. Hey, Chris, I've got the flight book for Italy at the He's back end of August. He's picking up for I've got skin in the game, Chris. I would I'm just asking the questions. I'm just asking the questions. It's a matter of timing. It's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when. So the beaches will be packed sooner or later, and that's what we're investing. I hope so, Chris. Great to catch up. Thank, Chris, you. thank you, Chris Casanti of MAI Capital. On the vaccine, this is my most important conversation of the day. Washington State and the University of Washington is definitive in microbiology. Leading their charge academically is Deborah Fuller. They do terrific work across all of biology and virology as well. Dr. Fuller, thank you so much for joining us. The Mayo Clinic tells me I need a tetanus shot every 10 years. Do pros like you just assume that we're going to be vaccinated for COVID out into the future? We're anticipating that these particular viruses, uh, as we see this virus evolve and we see new variants occur, uh, that this virus is going to be endemic. And that means that it will remain in our population for years uh, to come and that we can anticipate uh, occasional outbreaks and possibly even new variants to emerge. Um, But we do have the weapon to fight that, and that is with vaccines, just like you mentioned with tetanus, that's every 10 years we've studied that particular pathogen, and we know that's how often you need to get revaccinated to sustain your immunity. Uh, We're going to be studying that for SARS-CoV-2, and it could be just like influenza, where you have to get an annual vaccination to Mm -hmm. sustain your immunity. Do you assume that this COVID vaccination is specific to this 2020 bug, or can it be used on other COVID viruses forward? That's a great question. We are uh, studying that right now uh, in terms of particularly with the development of vaccines and uh, trying to design new vaccines that will eventually protect not against just this uh, 2020 SARS-CoV-2, but 
could we actually design vaccines against uh, future variants uh, that we haven't even seen yet? And the way we do that is we try to focus immune responses against uh, parts of the virus that uh, will not undergo viral evolution. They, they just can't. Otherwise, it would actually result in loss of fitness of the virus itself. So, uh, so that's, a, that's a futuristic study, a futuristic vaccine down the line. In the meantime, uh, tweaking viruses and updating them to keep pace of uh, emerging variants is a common practice, one that we know works certainly for other pathogens, and we anticipate it should work for this one too. Deborah, it's the question of the moment. I keep going back to it. Vaccine nationalism. Can you just comment on it, how worried you are about it? Vaccine nationalism. Define that for me. Please. Absolutely. Sure. So Europe right now does not want to export some of the vaccines. The UK is far more concerned about vaccinating its population beyond just the at-risk in society to try and get the whole population towards what some people would consider herd immunity at the expense of not making sure that the developing world also has access to the vaccine and therefore we could have a proliferation of the mutations that we've seen already in places like Brazil, South Africa and the UK and it would stop us from being able to reopen the economy. Is that okay? No, that's not okay. That's a major concern. As long as there is virus somewhere in the world, we are going to be battling this pandemic. So it needs to be a worldwide collective effort to, to shut down this uh, this pandemic uh, everywhere in the world. And, and that's, that's why, too, we're looking at wanting to make sure that we develop vaccines that are going to be able to be distributed uh, to far reaches of the world and be cost-effective and hopefully uh, work for potentially in a single shot. Deborah, thank you. Appreciate your time this morning. Thank you very much. Deborah Fuller, University of Washington School of Medicine Microbiology Professor on some of the key issues right now. Sobhadra Japa is a society general. They have an acute heritage of mathematics and bonds. We're thrilled she could join us today on rate strategy. Subhadra, what level do you need on 10-year yield to signal breakout out of the range? For me, that level is is 120 uh, in, in tens. I think that it's that 10 years are going to struggle to get past 120 until we see clear signs of uh, uh, you know, return to normalcy, you know, more vaccine deployment. So, so really the struggle is going to be trying to get past 120. Also, I think 120, 125 has implications for a broader risky assets. If you talk to say equity analysts or, or corporate bond strategists, what you typically tend to hear is that, you know, beyond 125 and 10s, they could see some stress in, the, in, in risky assets. And the Fed is very much keen on, on keeping rates in place uh, so that, you know, you don't see the sort of route in risky assets. So, Bandra, that's going to be a moving target. But I just wonder where they're comfortable and where they start to get uncomfortable. We know at the ECB, from our reporting, there are some levels of spreads that they are targeting. We don't know what those levels are, but apparently they exist. What do you think it is, the point on the curve that they're focused on, the level of rates, yields that makes them a little bit more uncomfortable? Well, I think any sort of rapid rise in yields is going to make them uh, uncomfortable. So the repricing in, in rates has to be very gradual and something that they feel like they have, have a handle on. We don't want to see what we saw back in, in March where you saw this unruly move in, in yields and the Fed had to come in and intervene. So if you do see a rise in yields and if it's gradual and over time and warranted as fundamentals improve, then I think they'll be comfortable with it. I mean, our forecast for your end is 150 in 10-year yields. I think it's on the high end of, of, of street forecasts. 
contrast to what we had last year when we were in the, we had the lowest forecast for for ten year yields. Um, so I think that we will get there, but I think it has to be very very gradual. I think a lot of that move in ten year yields is going to happen in the second half, not so much in the first half. What's positioning like, Sabadra, right now? It just feels like a massive change that everyone's on the same page for once over Treasuries. Typically, we come into any given year and people will be looking for something 100 basis points higher, something north of that sometimes. Seems like the ranges for estimates is a lot, lot tighter than it has been in years gone by. Yeah, it's it's entirely because of, of Fed intervention. I mean, uh, Jay Powell, uh, Fed Chair Jay Powell last week basically shot on the idea of tapering asset purchases uh, anytime mm-hmm. this year, they're sort of on track to continue to, to to buy bonds. So I think for the most part, positioning is kind of, you know, is is sort of favoring the, the range trade, i.e. when you start getting towards, you know, 1%, you know, uh, investors are broadly thinking, oh, this is probably a good, good place to go short the market. And around 117, 120, you're going to start seeing people right. cover shorts. So that's kind of the, the range, I think, that people are going to be trading in. Well, that's right, right where I wanted to go, Subhadra. The idea here of convexity or the dynamics of the full faith and credit, a ginormous market as well. If we go 111 to 120, do we get accelerative tendencies? Can convexity click in in a market as deep as the 10-year yield? Yeah, I mean, you do have some, some convexity uh, hedging activity, but you know, for the most part, it's not going to come from the, the mortgage universe. I think the, for the mortgage convexity had just to come in and start hedging their duration, it's going to have to happen uh, perhaps beyond 120. But I think within 1 to 120, you're going to see the, the range trade, um, you know, alive and well, where people start to sort of take profits when they get to 120 in 10s. How will the Fed respond at 120? I don't think they're going to be concerned if the fundamentals warrant the rise in yields. I mean, we saw 10 yields get to 117 or so intraday this year. So I think that if it's if it's accompanied by strong data, a rise in inflation expectations, a rise in real yields, uh, which is what we saw earlier on this year. So it's sort of a healthy reflation trade. Then I think the Fed's not going to be very concerned. I think that they're much more concerned about sort of, you know, dramatic uh, moves higher or lower in yields. Um, you know, that that's going to, you know, disrupt the, the risky assets and, and, and financial conditions, generally speaking. Sabandra, great to catch you up. Nailed the estimate in this bond market last year. Really did. Sabandra, great to catch yep. you up. Sabandra Japa of SockGen. Joining us now to talk about the global commodities market, talk about gold, oil and silver, Jeffrey Curry, Goldman Sachs, global head of commodities. Jeffrey, uh, thank you so much for coming on. I don't know whether the parallels right between GameStop and some of the uh, Reddit action can really directly transfer to silver because it's a different market and actually the <clears throat> positions from a lot of the hedge funds were completely different. Well, I think when we look at the silver market, the one thing to keep in mind, it is a lot larger than these equity markets. You know, you put the total amount of of open interest of silver, including both above ground and below ground, you know, somewhere in that $200 billion range on an annual output basis. You know, that is substantially larger. And as a result, to corner the market and create a short squeeze, um, we estimate it require each one of these Wall Street uh, individuals to accumulate a positions of somewhere around 4,200 ounces. That's a lot of silver, and where are you going to put it? So the, the analogy to, let's say, the Hunt brothers or uh, you know, 
Thursday, you know, Silver Thursday, I think, are far stretched. And also, let's not forget, because of the Hunt Brothers squeeze back in 1980, there are regulatory policies put in place that prevent a re replication of that, you know, i.e. position limits. So to, to see a similar type of dynamic take place in a macro market, we see it as extremely unlikely. So, Jeff, what are you expecting silver to go from here until the end of the year? You know, our target is $30 an ounce um, really being driven by a combination of a stronger gold market as well as, you know, the solar panel demand or call it the green CapEx driving prices. Now, we do expect if you see the Biden administration approve its solar ambitions, um, that target would move to $33 an ounce. Now, given the markets trading in that, you know, $27, $28 an ounce, it means there's a real fundamental story here. We like silver. Um, however, we don't like it because of a short, short squeeze. We like it because of mm -hmm. the fundamental story behind it. Uh, Jeff Curry, you were mentioning as we went into this interview about Jennings Bryan, 1896, and the cross of gold. Let's talk about the cross of silver uh, right now, which is the fixation of the public on trading commodities versus the fundamental story around tangible assets. You've always weighted the fundamental story. Is that a dated view? Do you have to shift and be more supple in your thinking about the speculative market of tangible assets? Well, when we think about the fundamental story of commodities in real assets more broadly, part of the reason we never saw a commodity bull market over the last, let's say, 12 to 15 years is because we never saw significant demand for commodities. What we think that these populist movements are likely to do is create an environment in which governments start spending, particularly on lower income households, that will create that demand for commodities and goods more broadly and create a more cyclical commodity intensive economic backdrop. And that really sits at the core of our bullish view on commodities as we see rev policies, redistributional policies, environmental policies like environmental capex and versatility in supply chains. Um, you know, and these things are very much um, related. We, you know, I think I can use green leveling, spending on green capex to level income. These types of expansion programs are really going to be behind our bullish view on commodities. Your, bull, your bullish view on commodities has been noted. There's some people pushing against you, Jeff Curry. It seems like it's just guarded, and you're out two standard deviations uh, through the trend. It's a really remarkable breakout of the long-term resistance that we've seen. Reaffirm the magnitude of the movement you believe we will see. Yeah, I would put it on par to the bull market we saw in the 70s or the bull market we saw in the 2000s. I would say this is more akin to what we saw in the 70s to the 2000s. Why? Our redistributional policies back then were the, um, you know, the great society, the war on poverty. RE, environmental policies, you had the war on acid rain, Clean Air Act, you had the Clean Water Acts, um, lots of spending on environmental policy back then. And then our V, our versatility in supply chains or resiliency in supply chains, 
You know, then you had the Cold War with Russia. Now we have a quasi-Cold War with China that can require spending. In fact, the big move in agriculture that we have seen over the last week is buying by the Chinese. They're building strategic reserves of grains, very similar to what the U.S. and Europeans did back in the 70s when they built their strategic reserves. So, you know, the analogy here and the magnitude is probably something more similar to the super cycle of the 70s than the one of the 2000s. Um, Jeff, going back to the silver trade, do you see the potential for retail traders to actually break into natural gas or oil? Again, the size of these markets, they're extremely large. They can break in it and they trade it, and they have been a part of these markets. Um, you have the ETFs in natural gas. You have the ETFs in oil, which are very large. And um, you do see an active presence of retail participation in those markets. However, I think what, what is different about this is the idea that they could drive these markets and push them. And I, they did drive and push silver yesterday. But when you start to get to markets like oil and natural gas, the liquidity is substantially larger and it becomes that much more difficult to do. So, I don't, you know, it's, there's a question here. Participation. Yes, they are participating. Yes, they are a part of these markets. But to be the marginal driver of these markets like they were in silver yesterday is, you know, a much larger question mark. Uh, Jeffrey, is there an instrument, though, that, that could, if that's what they decided to do, you know, would they play it through ETFs or is there an instrument that would make it easier of access? You know, the ETF is the, the, the easiest access. Now, one thing that I want to point out that makes oil radically different than silver or gold, the ETF in silver and gold is physically back. In fact, that short that the retail investors were focused on in the COMEX market is the hedging of that physical position in the ETF. The ETF in natural gas and oil is nothing other than a rolling front month GSCI style contract. It is a paper position, it's not a physical position. To understand why, I like to make this simple example. You can take all of the ETF physical position in gold and put it in your office. It may break the floor, it's so heavy as it would fall through, however you can fit it in its office. And then let's think about this, the ETF position in oil. If you were to hold it in a physical position, it would require something like 70 or 90 VLCCs. Now imagine in your head, parking 90 VLCCs in the East River in New York or the Thames here in London, it would be pretty difficult. Jeffrey, thank you so much. Uh, Jeffrey Curry there of Goldman Sachs. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.